Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to, to see you here. Well done for getting here. It's not been the easiest of weeks, has it, weather-wise? Today's service is all-age and interactive and slightly mad. Um, anything could happen in the next hour, as the saying goes. But we are here to worship God. And so we begin by hearing some words from the prophet Isaiah. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all that the Lord has done for us, and the great favour to the house of Israel that he has shown them, according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And now let's come to God in prayer. Loving God, as we gather today, we do so in the warm afterglow of Christmas festivities, when we have enjoyed plenty of tasty food, when we have exchanged gifts with those we love, and when most of us have had the opportunity to relax and unwind. For all that has made us glad, we give you thanks. But even as we say thank you, we're honest enough to admit that however good our Christmases have been, they haven't been perfect. From the little niggles over things that didn't quite go to plan to full-blown annoyance. From disappointment in what failed to meet our anticipated delight to age-old irritations rekindled by the confines of a public holiday. As we lay down all that has made us sad or bad-tempered, we ask you to forgive us any selfishness that has contributed to or caused it. As the holidays continue for most people, we pray for time to relax and find refreshment, to play, laugh and love. And for those who have to return to work or who are faced by illness, bereavement or difficult personal circumstances, we pray for your strength, courage and compassion. Now, as we worship you, help us to listen for your voice to notice your touch and to be blessed again by your coming in Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. Bible readings from Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. I'm reading firstly from verse 1 to 15. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the time when Herod was king. Long afterwards, some men who studied the stars came from, sorry, soon afterwards, some men who studied the stars came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the baby born to be king of the Jews? We saw his star when it came up in the east and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard about this, he was very upset and so was everyone else in Jerusalem. He called together all the chief priests and the teachers of the law and asked them, Where will the Messiah be born? In the town of Bethlehem in Judea, they answered. For this is what the prophet wrote, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, you are by no means the least of the leading cities of Judah, for from you will come a leader who will guide my people Israel. 
So Herod called the visitors from the east to a secret meeting and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Then he said, then he sent them to Bethlehem with these instructions. Go and make a careful search for the child. And when you find him, let me know, so that I too may go and worship him. And so they left, and on their way they saw the same star they had seen in the east. When they saw it, how happy they were. What joy was theirs. It went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. They went into the house, and when they saw the child with his mother Mary, they knelt down and worshipped him. They brought out their gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh, and presented them to him. Then they returned to their country by another road, since God had warned them in a dream not to go back to Herod. After they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, Herod will be looking for the child in order to kill him. So get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you to leave. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and left during the night for Egypt, where he stayed until Herod died. This was done to make what the Lord had said through the prophets come true. I called my son out of Egypt. And then from verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel, because those who tried to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went back to Israel. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus had succeeded his father Herod as king of Judea, he was afraid to go there. He was given more instructions in a dream. So he went to the province of Galilee and made his home in a town called Nazareth. Nazareth. And so what the prophets had said came true. He will be called a Nazarene. Amen. Matthew's birth narrative stands in a stark contrast to that we find in the Gospel of Luke. And it seems to marry together some really rather random elements the purpose of which isn't always immediately obvious. First of all, there are the unnumbered and unnamed Eastern Magi, traditionally understood to have been men, though having done a bit of research, it is possible there were women among their company. And they brought these bizarre gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. With the exception of gold, they were utterly impractical. But they were expensive and highly symbolic. If nothing else, they could probably be have, have been sold at a later date. And then secondly, we've got this imminent infanticide ordered by Herod. And Joseph, Mary and Jesus actually move west to seek safety in the land of Egypt, where they remain for an unknown length of time until it's safe to return to Israel. And even when they come back to Israel, they head north to Galilee, out of the way of the religious and state authorities. According to the writer of this gospel, these events fulfil ancient prophecies. And, according to biblical scholars, it marks out who the intended readers were of this gospel, 
people who were, by background, Jewish. So the combination of the visit of what might be termed pagan foreigners, symbolising the wider world, and the call both to and out of Egypt, making a parallel with Moses, give us a very clear statement about the author's intent. Christ is for all nations, and Christ is the new Moses. All of this is very familiar stuff. I've said it before, and certainly plenty of other preachers will have done. Disputes over historicity and fabrication, myth and mystery, in my view, are all adventures in missing the point. Because we're invited to discover or rediscover more from this story. It's a good story in its own right, and it has stuff to tell us, and God will speak to us through it if we have ears to hear. I seem to be making a bit of a habit at the moment of using the concordance on my computer Bible to research keywords and phrases. If you remember, I did that about the streams in the desert and the light and walking in the light and that sort of thing. This week, I did it with the word Egypt. And I'm really glad that I did because I think I got some new insights to the story that we've heard. And perhaps some surprising ones, because we discover that the transformative and redemptive work of Jesus begins when he is just a baby. Well, that's what I think. See if you agree as we go along. The word Egypt, sometimes rendered as Mizraim, is first mentioned early in Genesis as one of the descendants of Ham, the son of Noah. Along with all the lands of the ancient world, its origin is traced back to one of Noah's sons. And here Egypt is simply identified as a nation, and one that appears to be very fertile and well cultivated. Sarah and Abraham travelled there during a famine, famine, and they were expelled after Abraham pretended Sarah was his sister to try and protect himself. Ishmael, Abraham's son by Agar, when he grew up, he married an Egyptian. And then, in due course, during another famine, Isaac would actually be told by God not to go to Egypt, which was clearly still fertile, but to remain where he was in Philistia. And actually, Isaac, like father, like son, behaved very badly towards his wife a generation later than Abraham had done. Another generation would pass by, and then Joseph, son of Jacob, was sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. And we're given a glimpse into a highly organized and wealthy nation where powerful rulers took very seriously their religion and gave enormous significance to recurring dreams. We remember the story of Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. The diligent preparations that took place in Egypt meant that when there was another famine, there was plenty of food to go around. And of course, we all know fine well that in time, Joseph's family came from Israel into Egypt looking for food, and there was this beautiful reconciliation and reunion of the family after some more shenanigans along the way. And then they settled in Egypt. And we are here by the end of Genesis that they are wealthy and it's a nation that's growing and prospering. The Israelites in Egypt are doing very well. 
By the end of Genesis, it's, Egypt is seen at least as a benign state and probably as a prosperous, well-governed, fertile land in which, to which people, sorry, in which God's people now live and to which God's people turn in times of famine. famine. All this, then, is an incredible contrast to the more familiar account from the book of Exodus that paints a very different picture of Egypt. Egypt remains a prosperous, successful nation, but this prosperity is founded on a culture of slavery. The Hebrew people, generally hardworking and successful, have grown in numbers and are seen by Pharaoh as a threat. Increased oppression and attempts at infanticide don't prove effective. And in time, a leader, Moses, emerges to lead his people to liberty. Now, not until they've eaten one final meal in captivity, eaten when they are already dressed, ready to flee, and a meal that will become a permanent reminder of God's deliverance throughout the ages. See, there were flight bags there as well. They were ready to flee the nation, taking what they could carry. But freedom, of course, didn't turn out to be milk and honey from day one. And we're reminded yet again that what a fertile land Egypt was, because the Israelites were actually quite good at mumbling and grumbling at Moses. When we were in Egypt, they said, we had our fill of cucumbers, leeks, garlic, and watermelon. I hope they didn't eat all that together, because it would have been a bit odd, but lots of lovely food. And now, in the wilderness, they get, well, manna and quails, roast quail, quail pie, quail curry, quail sandwiches, all a little bit like the aftermath of Christmas, really. Well, probably not. So, as time passed, Egypt came to represent captivity. It was a symbolic term that had little or nothing to do with the nation-state in which Abraham Jacob and Joseph had found refuge and succor. Egypt came to represent all things bad, or at least all the bad things that Babylon didn't represent. So we have two places in their history that became very representative of things bad. And so given that background, given that Egypt is understood as bad, Matthew's story is actually rather shocking. Egypt representing oppression and slavery and death, a land with its own religious practices and part of the Roman Empire. And God says, that's where I want you to go. Go to Egypt until it's safe to come back home. We actually don't know anything about what happened in Egypt. We don't know how long the family stayed there. We've got no idea if Joseph found work or whether the family had to sell those expensive gifts in order to provide themselves with food and shelter. We can assume, probably quite reasonably, that as the child Jesus grew up a little, he would have played with other Egyptian toddlers. He would have accompanied his mother to the well. He would have seen the way that foreigners and outsiders were treated in that land. He probably picked up a smattering of the local language, at least enough to greet his friends and neighbours. Egypt, for the infant Jesus, was the complete opposite of what it had been for Moses. It was a place of safety, away from the gaze of Herod, who perversely is cast in the role of Pharaoh. 
by this time, Egypt was occupied by Rome, and some people may have viewed Caesar as kind of a pharaoh after the last uh, of the pharaohs, Ptolemy V, whose reign ended in BC 30. And I think this is what struck me really forcibly this week as I've read the story again. Egypt's role is changed by this story. Well, Egypt's role should have been changed by this story. Whilst the name of Egypt is used once symbolically and negatively in Revelation, the majority of New Testament references arise in accounts of the Exodus experience. Matthew, having introduced Egypt as a surprising place of safety for the infant Jesus, the incarnate Christ, fails to develop this idea any further, simply noting a parallel between Jesus and Moses. Or does he actually not need to do this? Is it that he expects his readers to see how his story subverts and counterpoints that of Moses? Is he already hinting that Jesus is going to defy and overturn expectations? I'd like to think that just maybe there's something a bit subtle going on there. But what has any of that got to say to us? Firstly, there does seem to be something here about language about the way names of places and people groups, even individual words, can become loaded with negativity, used pejoratively, either deliberately vilifying or alienating those to whom they refer, or symbolising something wayward, inferior or undesirable. There are lots of words um, in the English language that were once Descriptions of physical conditions that became terms of abuse and insult. There are words around human sexuality that can be used as words of insult. And I think this story about Egypt reminds us of the danger of using words carelessly. Egypt is a real place. Real people live there. And some of them are followers of Jesus. What must it feel like for them to hear the name of their homeland used as a symbol for slavery and injustice way, way, way back, or of the abomination in the Revelation vision? And how does it feel to the people, nations and groups whose names we use disparagingly? How might Jesus want to subvert that, turn that round? Secondly, there is the unexpected place of safety, the place that receives fleeing foreigners who it is is known, distrust the host people. I wonder who or what or where are the surprising places of refuge and acceptance that we might find. Isn't the story that the adult Jesus told, and which only Luke records, about the Samaritan who rescued a a mugged Jewish traveller, actually along these lines? Are we open to the possibility that those who will offer us support, love, space, hope, food, shelter, might just be the very other whom we fear or avoid. And might it also be the case that we are called to welcome, shelter, protect, affirm, feed 
and house the other whom we instinctively reject or distrust. Thirdly, the indelible effect of experience. Spending time in Egypt must have affected the child Jesus, just as it affected his parents and quite probably siblings. Living in the northern area of Galilee, away from the prying eyes of those who might wish him harm, would have had its own impact too. Here he would have mixed with foreign travellers, hearing tales from faraway lands, talking to people with different worldviews, and all of that must have influenced his thinking, just as it does our thinking. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Out of the place of safety from despotic rulers. Out of a place of prosperity and fertility. Out of a place that has been redeemed by his presence within it. And into a world in need of transformation and redemption from its own metaphorical badlands to become the kingdom of Christ's shalom. May the Christ child who transformed Egypt who transforms our world, disturb us and bless us this year and always. Amen. I'm going to use a prayer from the Christian Aid resource, Shine On, Star of Bethlehem, a prayer that was written by a man called Jeff Duncan. So let's pray together. Living Loving God, we are told that Mary, Joseph and Jesus travelled as refugees to Egypt. They were strangers in a strange land, separated from loved ones, their community and familiar surroundings. We are told that during his ministry, Jesus surrounded himself with strangers, marginalised people, and the outcasts of society. We remember now women, men, children, separated from their families, homes, communities, because of selfishness, broken relationships, greed, hatred, famine, and war. Encourage us, enable us to move out of our comfort, our complacency, and get alongside the sad, the strangers who cry out for understanding, for help, for love. Motivate us through compassion to be the prime movers to bring about a change in attitudes in our communities and to open our homes to give shelter and sanctuary and no strings attached love to people who need us to be Christ-like. And let's join our prayers together 
in the Lord's Prayer, using our first languages, whatever they may be, and whichever version is most familiar to us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. God of Israel, God of Egypt, God of our land, God of all lands, bless us with the surprise of your redemptive transformation as you lead us to or from unexpected places of safety in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. 